Lord Jesus, this morning we, we welcome you into this space. God, we thank you for, Lord, for Robin and for her stepping out in a calling, Lord, that you have placed on her life. God, we lift up every ministry that we do here at, at Anchor. Lord, we, we just want to acknowledge that if it's not for you, it's not worth it. Lord, I pray that you would help us today, Lord, that we would lean into your truth. God, regardless of maybe the distractions or the burdens or the millions of other things that we could think about, Jesus, if today, if this time is not for you, then it's not worth it. God, we've come to hear your voice. We've come come to learn your truth. God, I pray that that would be above everything else. Lord, we thank you so much for protecting Jackie and Melvin this past week. Lord, I'm so grateful that, that you are our protector. Jesus, I'm grateful that you protected our pastor Valerie this week. Lord, that this week could have been a lot harder. We know that you, you God, that you, you watch over us. Lord, that you love us. And that not a single thing happens without your say-so. Jesus, we pray for this week, Lord, as, as we have folks traveling, folks experiencing all sorts of illnesses. Lord, with illness comes financial struggle too. And Lord, I pray that you would be um, over the families that aren't here this morning. God, that you would heal their bodies, that you would provide the finances and the doctors and the things that are needed to heal them. Lord Jesus, we, we just want to come before your throne today with grateful hearts, Lord, with a surrendered life. God, sit by your feet and just lean in and listen to what you have. Holy Spirit, would you be about anchor today? And God, would we be about listening to you? It's in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, if you haven't met them yet, this is my sister, um, and I really, and this is Lola, most importantly, my niece, um, and some of you guys are like, finally, she talks about you so much, it's really nice to put a face to a name, um, but I am excited this morning because we have been able to spend a weekend of just kind of chilling and being together and, you know, embracing the snow days that came this week that by surprise. Um, <laughs> so this morning, our, our topic of conversation is temptation. Now, if you were here about like a year ago, we talked about temptation, only in a different context. And I brought some chicken tortilla soup and I cooked it on this stage. Now, does anybody remember that? Anybody remember the soup day? Yeah, I figured you might remember the soup day. Um, 
Because it was really good. It was a good illustration about how, you know, the enemy just kind of waits for us, and it simmers, and it smells good, and it lures us in. But let me tell you what. You guys were ravenous beasts after that sermon. Um, I have never seen this sanctuary clear out so fast for lunch as that day um, because you were just sitting here and smelling the soup, and I was mean and didn't share with you. Um, so this morning we're talking about temptation, and I was tempted to do that again. <laughs> and I thought, no, I'll be nice. So this, this crock pot is empty. Uh, there is nothing in it but delicious air. Uh, but I wanted to start with an observation about temptation, and that is this. That temptation is an invitation to embrace self-interest. Temptation is an invitation to embrace self-interest. It is always an invitation to cut in line and to get your own bowl of soup, right? You know, I'm very rarely am I tempted to be selfless, Right? And I'm more tempted for my own self-interest. Temptation is saying, I deserve this soup. I've been going here for years. Lindsay owes me some soup. You know, man, that, that soup would taste good. And temptation says, embrace your own self-interest. And that's the, that's the definition that we're going to be working with today. We are in week two of a three-month sermon series called I Am, and we're looking at Jesus's life all the way from when he stepped on the shores of the Jordan River to when his tomb was found empty. And you're going to hear me repeat this over and over again, and if you haven't written it down yet, I would encourage you to do so, because the main thesis of this sermon series is that Jesus came to introduce something new. He introduced a new covenant between God and man. And he said that it's bigger than just Israel. Uh, he introduced a new commandment that would be his unifying ethic for the last thing, which is a new movement, which is you and I, the church. And, and previously on I Am, <laughs> uh, we talked about a man named John the Baptist. And I really enjoyed talking about John the Baptist because you get to talk a lot about locusts and animal skin and people looking gross, right? Um, but we talked about John the Baptist, right? We talked about he was Jesus's headliner. He came out and he prepared the way. And John was very successful at drawing large crowds. And I'm not talking like a large crowd like maybe we even think. I'm talking thousands of people. And he drew thousands of people out into the wilderness to go get baptized and to repent of their sins and to make way for Jesus. And then he takes those large crowds and he directs them towards Jesus. Now, when we left off, Jesus was about to get baptized. And if you remember last time, Jesus came down and he came down the hillside and John saw Jesus and Jesus saw John and John knew who Jesus was, and Jesus knew who Jesus was, but nobody else really did. And Jesus comes down, and he says, John, you have to baptize me, which is a little awkward for John, because he says, I just told these guys I can't even touch your shoes, and you expect me to baptize you. <laughs> um, I can't do that, Jesus. He is face to face with the Son of God. And we may do this all the time because, you know, we can't physically see Jesus right before him, but he tells Jesus no 
Interestingly enough, verse, uh, Matthew 3, verse 14, but John tried to deter him. I don't know if you've ever tried to deter God, um, but that sounds like a pretty uh, lofty thing for John to decide to do. But he says, he says to him, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Imagine, like you're face to face with the Son of God, and you're like, no, I can't do that. Culturally, this would be just out of outlandish for John. This would be upside down and backwards in John, for John. And that's saying something. Because this is a weird guy that eats bugs and lives in the wilderness. Like, he makes his living on upside down and backwards situations. <laughs> and he says, no, Jesus, I can't do that. Because culturally, for Jesus to be baptized by John, that would mean that Jesus was what, coming under his leadership, accepting his way and what he was preaching. And that was very humbling for John. And so this happens, and he finally convinces him. You know, Jesus wins, kind of like every time, right? I hate to play skee-ball with him. I'm sure that he would win at that too. But he wins, and he baptizes Jesus. And the weirdest thing happens, because there's thousands of people. And what you expect to happen is for Jesus to be baptized, for him to come out of the water, you know, for him to say, thank you, John, for the marvelous introduction. You may now step behind the curtain. And then he starts. Wouldn't you expect that? But he doesn't. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all are the same on this, that immediately after he was baptized, he went into the wilderness. He went into the wilderness. Actually, God sent him into the wilderness. Now, let's jump into this. Matthew 4, verse 2. Or sorry, Matthew 4, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the, by the diabolos. Now, this diabolos word is where we get our English word diabolical. Diabolical. It, it, it means slanderer, accuser, or in our English Bibles, the devil. And before we launch into this whole discourse, we have to pause for a second. Because we need to ask, why? Why is this story so important that it makes Matthew, Mark, and Luke write it down? Now, whenever you look at ancient literature, you have to ask that question, why did the author decide to put this in here? And that's with any ancient literature, but the Bible is probably the most common ancient literature that we interact with. And the reason that's an important question to ask is because, let's be real, 90% of the world's population didn't know how to read or write. Also, it was expensive to write something down. And so you have to wonder, why this story? Why is it so important that we hear a conversation between Jesus and Satan himself? And not just any importance, why is it in the first three Gospels? And I would say that this is important because it sets the tone for how Jesus is going to be tempted through his entire life. Through his entire life, Jesus is going to be tempted to embrace self-interest, to embrace the crockpot, <laughs> to embrace the old mentality, the mentality of, let me get what is mine. 
And so it says in Matthew 4, verse 2, it says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which like, thank you, Captain Obvious, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I don't eat for 40 minutes and I'm hungry. 40 seconds some days, I don't know. <laughs> but it says he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. And we ask the question, why is it important that this is in there? And I'll tell you why. Because during the first century, there were all sorts of legends and myths and gods and spirits and things and pagans and all this stuff. And Matthew wanted to make sure that we knew that Jesus was not an apparition. He was not a ghost. He was not a spirit. He was flesh and blood. And he was hungry. And this point in the story, it's almost like Jesus wears himself out and he says to Satan, take your best shot. This is when you're going to get it. Verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell those stones to become bread. Now Matthew uses a different name for Satan right there. He says, the tempter. And the tempter looks down and he sees stones of bread, or stones of stone, and he says, turn those into bread. If you're so hungry... Make those into bread. It's a piece of cake or a piece of bread. Right? Right? <laughs> Just make them into bread. He's like, this should be easy for you, Jesus. I've read the first half of your book, right? This is, this is nothing. If you're so hungry, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and turn these stones into bread. And Jesus quotes the old covenant because even though he came to enact a new covenant, he was still under the law of the old covenant. And he says this, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he quotes this scripture to bring back the picture of manna in the desert, having a daily dependence on God. And it's as if Jesus turns to the enemy and he says, I will not be independent from my God. I will not be independent from the Father. I will live on every single word he has to say. And then it says this, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, when I first read this, how many of you guys have seen Star Trek? Okay, fair enough. You know that they can, like, teleport people, right? Like, Beam me up, Scotty, right? And I really wish that that was a thing. I'll say that. Anybody else wish that was a thing? Uh, on Thursday when my sister and Lola got here, it took me three hours to drive in the snow to get to the airport, and I really wished I could have just been like, beam me up. <laughs> like, beam me to Denver. I don't want to drive in snow any longer, right? Like, there are moments that I just wish that that would happen. And when I read this scripture, it says, the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And when I read that, I kind of get a Star Trek-y sort of vibe, you know? that they just kind of were teleported there. And they're on the tallest point of the tallest tower, and they're looking over and maybe like hunched over, standing on a pillar like a gargoyle or something. But that's not what the text says. It says that he took him to the highest point in the temple. Now, the highest point in the temple would be on the southeast side, and it overlooked this massive valley called the Valley of Kidron, and it was said that it was hundreds and hundreds of feet deep. 
Josephus, who was a historian that came after, he would say that people, when they stood on this corner of the temple and looked down, they would get dizzy. And they would have to step back because it was so high up. And so the devil, he takes Jesus there, and they walk there together. What a weird trip, right? Like, well, what does small talk look like for that? But I don't know. But, but he walks there, and he stands on the, the highest point of the temple, and he looks into this vast valley. And the devil, he says this. He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Imagine that. He's like, say, like, Jesus, look at this huge valley. I know you're about to start your work. Why don't you just jump? Why don't you just throw yourself down? How amazing would it be to start your ministry surviving a fall like this? You would be so popular. <laughs> you would be so cool. And nestled in this, this scripture that he quotes is a lie that has worked its way into the American church. That God has to do something. That if I believe hard enough, I will receive it. He has to catch me. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to test. And he quotes Moses. And this is a verse when the Israelites said to Moses, we're God's chosen people. He has to fix this. He has to save us. And Moses says, no, you're God's people. Yes, but he doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to do anything. Because the reality is, is that we can't manipulate God, can we? We can't manipulate the cards. If you're a Christian and and the moment that you start to manipulate God, the moment you think, if I do this and this and this, God has to do this, we're not practicing Christianity anymore. We're practicing magic and superstition and loopholes. The very thing that Jesus came to overthrow. When, when Jesus says, he says, don't imagine God like some king on a throne with his arms crossed, half asleep while you're talking to him. Imagine him as a father. Don't imagine him as a, as a, as a king that has to be bribed into moving. Imagine him as a dad that loves you so much. And so those are the first two temptations. And I'll tell you, the first two temptations, like Satan and Jesus, they were just getting to know each other, you know? That was just like the warm-up act. But the third one, the third one's for all the marbles. The third one is the main event. But before we get there, we just have to have this conversation, and I want to just think about this with me. Why are powerful people so inclined to go off the rails? Have you ever noticed that? Why are powerful people so inclined to go off the rails? You know, ethically, uh, financially, morally. Why? Why does that happen? 
You know, what, where does bullying come from? Where does this thought like, I'm bigger than you and I'm going to leverage that, where does that come from? Where does uh, arrogance and dismissiveness, where does elitism come from? Where does greed come from? Where does things like sexual harassment, where in the world does that come from that I can leverage my power over you and you are less? Where does that come from? Because you think, like maybe I think, that if I had more influence and more power, I'd be better, right? If I had more influence, if I had more say, if I had more wealth, my life would be better. But why is it that oftentimes that's not the case? Why is it that oftentimes it makes people go off the rails? Why does power corrupt? And here's the great thing. Even if you don't like Jesus, you should follow his story. Because he talked and he modeled something very different. He taught and he modeled that power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. He said that power is not just for those people that are powerful. It's to leverage it for the people that are powerless. And when he comes into the Jewish community and the Jews are under Roman oppression, they think we need somebody powerful to leverage that power and to free us. And Jesus says, no, that's not how power works. Power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. He also said this, wealth is not primarily for the benefit of the wealthy. That wealth is actually kind of a test. It's a test to show your trust in God and what he's given you. That we all get handed this wealth test. And you're, I know what you're thinking. Um, I'd at least like to take it right? You know, I, I'd at least like to take the wealth test. I think I could ace the wealth test, right? But very few people do. And I'll be honest with you, if you're in this room, you're already taking the wealth test. 70 to 80 percent of the world would call you wealthy. And Jesus, he always has this way of saying, when we're not, I'm not wealthy, he says, well, what's in your hand? Because whatever I've given you, it's about stewardship. It's about using it for my good. And the last thing that he modeled and he taught is that influence is not primarily for the benefit of the influential. And this is important because his entire life, he will be tempted to side with the crockpot. He will be tempted to side with self-interest, with how kings got their kingdoms. You will be tempted to, to say, yes, I want the soup. It's mine for the taking. Look at what, what happens next. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Now, we could do this on, like, Google Earth, but, but he went to the highest mountain. He went on a hike with the devil himself went up to the tallest mountain, and it says that he didn't just look at some kingdoms. He looked at all the kingdoms. And not just kingdoms, but kingdoms in all their splendor. Now, 
Have you ever gone to like an overlook in a city at night? And you see all of the little lights. You know, and the air is kind of cool. And you see the traffic. You see the biggest buildings. And they look the best. You see the vastness. You see the people. You see the beauty. You see the splendor. And Jesus looks over all the kingdoms. He sees Jericho 16 miles away. He sees all of these things. He sees torches lit. He sees people walking around. He sees money. He sees power. And the enemy says, this is what you came for, isn't it? Feast your eyes. Feast your eyes on the splendor. And he said this, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus, look at it. It's what you came for. It's yours anyway. I just need you for a second to acknowledge that it's mine to give. I just need you to acknowledge that it's mine for just a minute. And yet, he doesn't. And yet, even though he's entitled to everything, and even though he was there when the first breath of oxygen was breathed, he refuses. Who in this world refuses what they're entitled to? And I'll tell you who. Some of the most inspiring people you have ever met. But Jesus... He did not come to barter for a kingdom. He came to establish a kingdom in the hearts of people. He came to establish a kingdom of conscience that said power isn't for the powerful. Wealth isn't for the benefit of the wealthy, and influence isn't for the benefit of the influential. He came to establish a kingdom like no other. A kingdom like no other. A kingdom where the subjects don't have to barter for attention or they don't have to pledge their allegiance and die for their king, but a kingdom where the king lays down his life for his subjects. How upside down and backwards is that? Matthew 4, verse 10, he said, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is writ- written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Luke's rendition of this, it says, Then the devil finished all his tempting. And he left him until an opportune time. He says, this is just round one. I will be back, and you will be weaker, and you will reach into that crockpot. I know it, you know it, but I'll wait for an opportune time. I will wait, and I will simmer until just the right time. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And this, this is just, I don't know, this is just funny to me. Uh, then he goes to a wedding. He goes to a wedding, and maybe in spite the devil, maybe just for fun, he doesn't turn stones into bread. He turns water into wine. And it's not for him. It's for his guests. 
And you know why he did that? Because his mama told him to. <laughs> Which I think is the whole point of this story. And I even put it on the screen. Say yes to your mama and no to the devil. <laughs> right? <laughs> Say yes to your mama and no to the devil. And we, la we laugh, but like, let's be honest. At one time or another, wouldn't it have been smarter for you to say yes to your mama and no to the devil? Like, like can we just be honest and raise our hands? Like, like that's, just, that's just truth, you know? <laughs> that, that there are times, and Jesus does that, and he throws it in Satan's face. And, and he gives it away to the guests, and it's beautiful. But here's the point, and here's the real point. You know, that one was good. You can write that down, get it tattooed, I don't care. But the, that one was good. <laughs> But the real point here is that Jesus was offered, to some extent, what we all want. He was offered everything that we convince ourselves that our lives are missing. And yet he said no. He refused it. He says, I did not come to take over. I came to take the sin away. I did not come to lord it over you. I came to get up under the burden of sin. I came to get up under this problem. And he's trying to model it and teach it. And later on in the story, and we'll get to it, but he's walking with the disciples. And he's trying to explain this upside-down kingdom. And the disciples, they're like, okay, that's great. And it, it's getting the crowds, and I know that it's inspiring, but we all know that there's going to be a pecking order. We all know that there's going to be the first guy, the second guy, and then all the other. How does it work? And this is what he said in Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, we're not going the way of the kingdom. We're not going the way of the crockpot. We're not going the way of self-interest. You have seen kings do that already. And that's not going to happen. And he says, I'm not backing down on this. I did not come to be served, but to give my life as a ransom for many. And this is why it's so important. This is why it's important to you. This is why it's important to me. Regardless of what you believe or what you've done, okay? The reason that this happened, do you know what Jesus valued more than the kingdom? Do you know what he valued more than self-interest, more than what was in the crockpot? Do you know what he valued? You. You. He saw all the splendor, all the wealth, all the power, all the influence, and he said no because of you. And no matter, because he knew that no matter how much power, how much wealth, how much influence that you had, you could not overcome the power of sin in your life. You couldn't talk your way out of it. You can't buy your redemption. You can't get that with power and wealth and influence. So he came to be a ransom for many. That's, that's so important. It's more important than anything else because you know what hung in the balance? That day, you know what hung in the balance between him choosing kingdom? You did. You hung in the balance. And you know what hangs in the balance? 
between you and your temptation to choose kingdom? You do. And we know this. Because every time that we choose the kingdom of this world, the wealth, the influence, the power, every time we choose that, our lives get so small and so meaningless and shallow. And he asked this question of the disciples. He says, come on, come on, let's just be honest here. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. And you knew this. Before I even read the scripture, you knew this to be true. Because the people in this world that you look up to are not the people that are cutting in line to get the soup. They're the ones that brought it and give freely of it. Would you pray with me? God, I... I am in awe, Lord, of all the things that you gave up just for a relationship with me. Jesus, you, you see, you see me. Lord, you've seen how I sin. You see how I mess up. You see what I get angry about. Lord, you see everything about me. Lord, this was before I was even born. Jesus, and still you said that I was worth it. That even when met with everything that this world could offer, you said no. Jesus, I don't know how I could ever repay you. Lord, but I want to give my life, Lord, to your way, to your kingdom. God, I want to be, I want to have a life that's inspiring. Lord, I want to be the person that shows up with the soup. Lord, I want to be the person that gives my life away freely. Jesus, I want to use my wealth for your glory. I want to use my power for your purpose. God, I want to use my influence for your kingdom, not for my own selfishness. Jesus, thank you for choosing that. Lord, would you help me to choose the same?